You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and I'm talking today about ENT pearls. And my guest speaker joining me is Dr. Adva Buzi from the Division of Otolaryngology at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Katie. Thanks for having me. So we're going to try to cover a lot of topics today, strep throat, chronic um, otitis, sinusitis, and some other little things along the way. So we're going to jump in first with talking about uh, recurrent pharyngitis or strep throat. And we see a lot of strep throat in primary care, as you can imagine, but occasionally we're surprised by a positive rapid strep in a patient without a convincing history or exam. And one could argue, certainly, that we shouldn't have swabbed those children at all. Um, But once we get that uh, positive result, we often feel compelled to treat. So how can we then think about children who may be carriers of strep, um, and that is maybe what we're actually seeing, and should we be culturing those kids when they're well? That's a great question, Katie. Uh, carriers of group A strep are extremely common. One study found 20% of school-aged children were chronic carriers of group A strep during spring and winter, and these carriers may be colonized for more than six months at a time. Carriage is defined as a positive antigen test or culture with absolutely no symptoms. It's even thought that children with frequent discrete episodes may in fact be carriers of group A strep who are experiencing recurrent episodes of viral pharyngitis. Mm -hmm. Culturing these patients during asymptomatic periods may actually be useful in establishing a carriage state and decreasing the number of antibiotics that they do receive during those times. Helpful hints for a true group A strep infection include symptoms such as fever, tonsil inflammation and exudate, and tender lymphadenopathy. Treatment of the carriage state is unnecessary. This is because these patients are not likely to transmit the disease and they have a low to no risk of developing sequelae of these strep infections. Great, that's good to know. And we often think about a TNA as as curative, but you can still get a strep infection after a TNA, so how likely is that? And do they look any different pre or post-surgery? So that's another great question. Unfortunately, strep infections are not uncommon after tonsillectomy. And tonsillectomy should really be reserved for patients who have recurrent severe sore throats. That's defined as seven infections in a year, five in two consecutive years, and three in three consecutive years. Other indications include infections resulting in hospitalization, or other complications like peritonsillar abscess or Lemierre syndrome. This is because many studies have shown that the natural history of recurrent tonsillitis is that of spontaneous resolution. Mm -hmm. That being said, tonsillectomy can reduce the number of infections in patients experiencing severe sore throats. Unfortunately, they do sometimes continue to have strep infections. Not many studies have been done on recurrent pharyngitis after tonsillectomy in children. However, those that have been done in adults do show that sometimes these uh, patients lean towards decreased severity and duration of symptoms after tonsillectomy. Mm-hmm. Great. So it's a little bit more, it sounds like, about what impact these infections are having on their life and not so much 
that we're trying to prevent more strep infections. Absolutely, Katie. Especially kids who are more severely affected, missing a lot of school. We take all those things into consideration when we see patients in clinic. Great. Let's jump over and talk a little bit about chronic otitis. We have a clear pathway at CHOP for acute otitis media, but trickier to manage sometimes are the kids who have chronic serous fluid. Um, And for those who we note fluid consistently on our exam over time, when do we need to worry that that might impact language development or need an intervention? That's a great question. The management of chronic otitis media really has many subtleties. We know that it is quite common. Uh, We also know that most of the time it does spontaneously resolve um, in children. Um, Children who have been diagnosed with chronic otitis media, which is effusion that has lasted for longer than three months, um, tend to keep that effusion um, often. Uh, There have been several studies prospectively to try to uh, uh, delineate whether there are uh, detriments to speech and language development uh, with chronic otitis media. Mm-hmm. Um, studies to date have shown none to very small association of otitis media with detriments in speech and language development. Um, however, many of these studies do look at normal, average, healthy children, and they don't take into account the level of hearing loss that these children have with the otitis uh, media. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that otitis media can result in hearing loss, vestibular problems, poor school performance, behavioral problems, ear discomfort, recurrent ear infections, reduced quality of life, and rarely damage to structures in the middle ear. The most important part of management is identifying children who may be at risk and in whom the impact of the effusion is going to be disproportionately higher than an average child. These children include those with developmental, behavioral, and sensory disorders. Hearing tests should be obtained in these children or in any child that has had an effusion for longer than three months. Watchful waiting is a very appropriate option in children with no signs of delay or the previously listed um, sequelae. Any of the patients with risk factors that we discussed should really be considered for early intervention. Mm -hmm. Great. So watchful waiting is okay. We'll just keep a a close eye on their exam over time and their language development in particular for otherwise normal kids. Absolutely. Great. And should we ever treat these kids with antibiotics? So except in the situation of an overlying acute otitis media, there is absolutely no indication or evidence for treating serious otitis media with any types of medications. So that includes antibiotics, um, decongestants, antihistamines, or oral steroids. Great. Less medicine is good with us. (laughs) Okay. So let's talk a little bit about sinusitis, which I know is your area of expertise too. So when do the sinuses fully develop and what's the youngest age that a child could get sinusitis? Great. So some of the sinuses actually appear during gestation while others don't develop till later in life. Uh, The maxillary sinuses appear first around 60 to 75 days of gestation. Um, The ethmoid sinuses develop around the third month of gestation. Uh, Both of those sinuses reach full uh, adult size by about age 14. Uh, The sphenoid sinuses, those all the way in the back of our nose, don't pneumatize until about three years of age. Mm -hmm. And then the frontal sinuses are the last to appear around six to seven years of age and don't reach full size till adults Mm -hmm. um, age. Uh, Since some sinuses appear prior to birth, very young children can actually develop acute sinusitis. Mm -hmm. In fact, very young kids can even be affected by acute complications of sinusitis. Mm -hmm. That's really good to know because I think sometimes we we think because they're still in development and they're still enlarging that they can't get infected, but they certainly are there and can get infected even when they're tiny. Absolutely. 
Great. So when should we be using antibiotics for sinusitis? Like how many days of illness and what's your first line antibiotic choice? Yeah. So distinguishing a URI from a caused by a virus uh, from an acute sinusitis is very important for mm -hmm. correct antibiotic usage and avoiding unnecessary treatment. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics has useful practice guidelines uh, for the diagnosis and management of acute bacterial sinusitis in children. A diagnosis of acute bacterial sinusitis should be made when a child with a URI presents with persistent illness lasting more than 10 days without improvement. Um, without improvements are the key word there. Mm -hmm. um, symptoms from a viral URI should begin to abate about four to five days after an illness. Mm -hmm. On the same token, if a child begins to improve but then has worsening of his symptoms, a diagnosis of acute sinusitis can also be made. Mm -hmm. The other situation would be severe onset of symptoms for, with fever greater than 39 degrees and purulent nasal discharge for at least three consecutive days. The guidelines recommend treating patients like these with a, with a severe course and those with a worsening course with antibiotics immediately. The kids who have that persistent disease for 10 days can actually be watched for a couple more days to see whether they improve and then an antibiotic prescribed if they don't improve. Mm -hmm. The most common isolates of bacteria are strep pneumonia, uh, non-typable haemophilus influenzae and Morexella cateralis. And so amoxicillin high dose is the first line treatment for uncomplicated acute bacterial sinusitis, okay. um, especially in a community that has a high um, prevalence of non-susceptible strep pneumo. Mm -hmm. And then patients presenting with moderate to severe illness, those with younger than two years of age, those who are in daycare, um, and those who have been recently given uh, antibiotics may benefit more from a high dose augmentin. Mm -hmm. um, a single dose of IV or IM ceftriaxone may be necessary if a kid can't tolerate um, oral antibiotics and then an oral course following that single dose is appropriate. Great. And for kids who are getting recurrent sinusitis, maybe they have an underlying risk factor, maybe they've just been unlucky um, in that season. What can we help uh, tell parents to do that might prevent, like are there other um, nasal washes or allergy meds or humidifiers, kind of what, what else can we do? Yeah, so so we know that acute sinusitis results from sinus osteal obstruction, ciliary dysfunction, and thickening of sinus secretions. Although there aren't many studies examining preventative therapies in children or adults, it does stand to reason that any adjuvant therapy which would target those three causes of acute sinusitis would be helpful in preventing mm -hmm. acute infection. Therefore, hypertonic saline irrigations or sprays should work in decreasing edema and therefore obstruction. Mm -hmm. Steroid nasal sprays would be useful in the same manner. Uh, allergy medications uh, could help in the atopic patient. Mm -hmm. uh, humidifiers may help by keeping nasal mucosa moist during dry seasons. Mm -hmm. And there might also be a role for a short intermittent course of topical decongestants mm -hmm. for times of extreme nasal congestion. Mm -hmm. Great, I love that there's a few different options that families can try to then that are non-medicinal in some, in some cases too. When should we refer children with chronic sinusitis? And when we're referring them, what kind of additional treatments might be done that we could anticipate? Sure, so unlike acute sinusitis, which is primarily thought to be an infectious process, chronic sinusitis really refers to an entity with a much more broad range of underlying pathologies and it's not necessarily a single condition. So diagnosis of chronic sinusitis requires symptoms for greater than 12 months, mm -hmm. and a fever is very uncommon with that. When children are referred for chronic sinusitis, an initial attempt is made at maximal medical therapy. This usually involves three to four weeks of antibiotics, daily nasal irrigations, and a topical nasal steroid spray. 
-hmm. Following this treatment, if symptoms persist, a CT scan is used to identify and for any persistent sinus disease. Mm -hmm. This can be done by you as a practitioner or it can be done by a referred uh, physician. Mm -hmm. In the situation where persistent disease does exist, a consultation with us is definitely uh, considered. Um, and other etiologies or surgical intervention is usually um, identified. Mm -hmm. uh, reflux is also a major culprit in chronic sinus disease, and sh I would always recommend uh, thinking about that when you're seeing a young child with recurrent sinus infections or mm -hmm. chronic sinus infections. Mm -hmm. Great, that's a good one to, to think about that I think we sometimes don't associate together. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. So let's do a little bit of ENT potpourri. Um, so although it's often a concern for families, excessive cerumen is only present in about one in 10 children. So, but for those that do have impacted cerumen who have symptoms like hearing loss or pain, what's the best way for us to safely remove cerumen in primary care? And when should we refer? It's an excellent question. Mm -hmm. We see a lot of cerumen in the ENT clinic mm -hmm. too. So I think the best way to safely remove cerumen is really based on a practitioner's comfort level, as well as the amount and quality of the cerumen in the patient's ear. So if the cerumen is non-obstructive and soft, irrigation or removal with instrumentation, for example, an ear curette mm -hmm. um, where available, may yield good results. If the cerumen is completely obstructing or very, very firm, which can usually be um, delineated when you're looking into the ear, mm -hmm. um, sometimes a round of debrox uh, or hydrogen peroxide can be useful, followed by re-examination and then possibly going back to the irrigation or instrumentation route. Mm -hmm. um, I often recommend patients actually use debrox or hydrogen peroxide weekly before a shower if they have mm -hmm. the propensity to uh, clog up with cerumen. Mm -hmm. Um, it is important to counsel parents against the use of cotton swabs or small instruments in the ear as that mostly worsens impaction. Mm -hmm. And again, if there's discomfort about the amount of earwax, you can always refer to an otolaryngologist mm -hmm. as we have microscopes and all kinds of instrumentation mm -hmm. to remove cerumen impaction. Great. Parents are often worried that the, the wax is causing some sort of a problem, but other than the discomfort of having it and maybe the obstruction factor in, impacting their hearing, is it pathologic in any other way? It is absolutely not. And it is actually protective of our ear. And I always stress that to parents. The only time it really causes problems is, as you mentioned, when it's extremely impacted, mm -hmm. it can affect hearing. But if you can see even a tiny bit of eardrum, it's usually not affecting the hearing. Great. When there's a lot of drainage in the ear canal, we often can't see the TM. So how can we be sure not to miss a cholesteatoma, which is what I think many of us are terrified of. So <laughs> what, what signs and symptoms should we look out for so that we can feel better that we're not missing something? Yeah, everybody should be terrified of cholesteatomas. Yeah. So um, in the case of copious drainage, it is appropriate to first treat the drainage with a topical antibiotic drop um, and then examine the eardrum once the drainage has subsided. Um, I think it's often useful to have parents wick away some of the drainage uh, before putting the drops in the ear. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's just so much drainage you can't even get drops in the ear. So I often have them just kind of bunch up a little cotton ball and try to put it mm -hmm. right at the opening of the ear to try to draw back some of that um, drainage. Mm -hmm. um, now, I would have them come in for re-examination and then if that drainage doesn't subside and the culture-directed drops have been used, so you get a culture to make sure you're treating the correct thing, mm -hmm. then a consultation with an otolaryngologist should definitely follow. 
unfortunately, unless a cholesteatoma has caused erosion into the vestibular organs, which only occurs in very advanced disease, it's unlikely that a patient would present with other signs or symptoms. Mm. Um, hearing loss is unfortunately not a useful tool for evaluation because kids with drainage are going to have hearing loss anyways. Right. Um, so even if there was some hearing loss caused by the cholesteatoma, it's usually masked by the fact that they have drainage as well. Mm. So the only way to definitively really diagnose a cholesteatoma is getting a very good look at the ear or doing imaging. Mm, that doesn't make me feel better. I know. <laughs> just send them to us. Good yeah. to know. Okay. <laughs> They're not resolving, just send them to us. Great. Um, on another topic, for patients with a suspected obstructive sleep apnea, should we always refer for a sleep study prior to ENT or can we send them directly to you? Great question. So a sleep study is not necessary to diagnose sleep disordered breathing in a child. If the symptoms are very apparent to the caretaker, treatment in the form of surgical intervention is often recommended without a sleep study. Mm -hmm. um, so if there is a question of whether issues exist, a sleep study may be of use. Um, or another consideration is patients who have previously had tonsillectomy and adenoidectomy and are now having issues, that would be a really good place to do mm -hmm. a, a sleep study prior to evaluation by an ENT. Um, those are often helpful. Mm -hmm. um, in our office, we often order sleep studies on patients with multiple co comorbidities or very, very young patients. Mm -hmm. um, but that being said, if there's any thought about whether or not to order one, it's absolutely appropriate to be examined by an otolaryngologist initially. And mm -hmm. if we deem it appropriate, we will order the sleep study. Mm -hmm. Great. And we were talking that there are a few studies at CHOP, too, that are looking at sleep Absolutely. apnea. And as part of those studies, sometimes kids will get a sleep study, too. So that's And another... an expedited sleep study, right. which is really nice as well. Yeah, and, so. it, and it helps us find out whether you know, minor sleep apnea or just primary snoring are issues. So yeah. absolutely. Great. So for those in the CHOP Care Network, you can look for that in your um, best practice alerts in your care assistant and um, enroll patients as appropriate. Absolutely. Straight from your clinic. Great. What are the things that you want primary care to refer to you more often or sooner that maybe we're not doing enough of? And on the flip side, is there anything that we're sending you too much of that we probably could have handled in primary care? Sure. So... I think any, like I said before, any concerns about lesions involving the eardrums or abnormalities of the eardrums should be referred to an otolaryngologist. Mm -hmm. Ear anatomy is very complicated and a missed cholesteatoma or negative pressure diagnosis can really be detrimental to a patient's hearing. Mm -hmm. um, even I sometimes have difficulties looking at eardrums mm -hmm. uh, and I have tons of instrumentation. So I think that's mm -hmm. really important. Um, patients with ankyloglossia or tongue tie uh, are ones that I think may benefit from really early referral to an ENT. Uh, I think, unfortunately, the diagnosis is missed sometimes mm -hmm. um, and can cause a lot of psychological um, issues in the mother even. Mm -hmm. um, if any concern exists at all with a patient with breastfeeding difficulties, a consultation can be of use to identify a tongue tie, mm -hmm. which may be difficult to assess mm -hmm. um, for some. Uh, I think we see a lot of patients with recurrent strep throat a little bit prematurely. Mm -hmm. um, I know that's difficult. Um, mm -hmm. The tonsillectomy is really only recommended when strep throats are very severe, mm -hmm. and often children with recurrent tonsillitis will improve with absolutely no intervention, and tonsillectomy is of minimal benefit. Mm -hmm. um, apart from that, I think you guys yeah. are doing a great job. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to know that we can handle those recurrent pharyngitis and strep infections in primary care without worrying that not referring them to ENT for tonsillectomy is doing any harm because it sounds like there's not too much benefit from surgery. So watchful waiting and 
patient education right. is appropriate. I think, yeah, I think it's important to note that those with very severe sore throats would definitely have benefit, mm-hmm. but not necessarily someone who's had three strep throats in a, in mm-hmm. a year. And then you mentioned um, ankle glossier, tongue tie, and um, there are some kids who have that on exam, but breastfeeding is going well and feeding is going okay. Do we need to worry down the road about that affecting speech? And is there any indication to do a uh, phrenectomy yeah. just for that indication, or is it mostly related to breastfeeding problems? Yeah, that's an excellent question. When we do them young, we usually do them for breastfeeding problems. Mm-hmm. We usually don't like to do procedures for something that may happen. Right. So I often do counsel the parents that at this at that age, I'm not doing it for speech issues. I'm mm-hmm. only doing it for breastfeeding issues. Um, I have seen plenty of older kids with severely tongue or I guess severe tongue ties Mm -hmm. um, that have absolutely no effect on their speech whatsoever. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that it's a good idea to make that articulation call when they're that little. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty easy in-office procedure too. Absolutely. No anesthesia or anything. We just put some topical anesthetic on the tongue and it takes about one minute. Great. That's good to know. So we will link on our website to the CHOP Clinical Pathway for Acute Otitis Media Um, and, uh, I don't believe there are any other pathways right now, um, for primary care and ENT, but we'll keep an eye out if any of those develop, but thank you so much for giving us some really good guidelines. And I think the most important take home point that you mentioned is when you're concerned, certainly refer to ENT, the exams, the exams are tricky. We know, um, even for you sometimes, so that makes us feel better. So yeah, thanks so much. Absolutely. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash PCP podcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.